Hello, hello, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Beth Salafia, and I am the Director of Programming and Research at BioGirls. Just so you know a little bit about me, I earned my PhD from the University of Notre Dame, then was a professor at North Dakota State University for 13 years before joining the team at BioGirls. This month, as you may know, is Mental Health Awareness Month. At BioGirls, we're committed to helping girls learn about and improve their mental wellness. In fact, mental wellness is one of the four key pillars of the BioGirls program. During the month of May, we at BioGirls are doing a short podcast series to discuss mental health and wellness topics that are relevant to parents and adolescents in our community. Over the next few weeks, I'll be speaking with industry professionals in hopes to bring more awareness and understanding to the importance of mental health. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Christina Smestad-Schmaltz. Um, Christina is a li licensed marriage and family therapist at the Village Family Service Center in Moorhead, Minnesota. She provides individuals, couples, and family therapy to people of all ages who are struggling with a wide variety of challenges. And today we're going to cover some important information that parents should know about mental health and their children. Thanks for being here, Christina. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. All right, Christina, we have a couple questions for you. Um, some of our BioGirls parents were, wrote in some questions for us and um, we're just gonna start there and, and see how we do. So first off, can you tell us um, how young you see cases of poor mental health occurring? You know, I often see, um, you know, my specialty area is zero to five-year-olds and so, um, we do actually see quite a few of the little ones coming in, in addition to um, elementary school kids and adolescents um, of all ages, but um, we have seen even infants younger than six months that come in for assessments. Um, the majority of the time it often has to do with um, challenges that have occurred in the family's life, uh, maybe some trauma or adversity that they've experienced. Um, and so just wanting to make sure that the child's development is on track and that, that um, they can kind of do some preventative work um, and early intervention to make sure that uh, the kiddos do function in the best way possible. Um, I am trained in a specific uh, model of therapy that starts at um, age six months. And so that's called attachment and biobehavioral catch-up. Um, and that is a program that is um, for six months to two years old. Most of the interventions that we do with little ones, though, are really, um, you know, with the, the infant or toddler, but also with the parents, because a lot of the inter interventions occur with the parents um, and kind of working through some things that the parents can do um, to help set their, their babies and their toddlers up for success. So um, very much family focused therapy when they're young like that, but um, they can come in really early on, like a few months old. Wow. So it sounds like a, a parent heavy involvement is really necessary to promote positive development in kids. And so that kind of leads me to my next question about how parents can um, either ask their kids or talk to their kids about mental health. I mean, I know you, you're dealing with a really young group here, but yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's really important to not think of, you know, the mental health conversation as one conversation, but think of it as just kind of incorporating it into your family's life. Um, and so that can start from a very young age. So um, I think a lot of it 
is even when our kids are babies or toddlers, we can be saying things that are validating their feelings or labeling their um, feelings or their experiences of things. And so being able to kind of talk them through things, you know, like maybe, maybe a toddler falls down and you pick them up and provide some nurturance and you might say, oh, that felt scary when you fell down. I'm here for you. And, um, and uh, I'm here to help you through this and just kind of um, opening up that dialogue that feelings are something that we just talk about every day in our household. Um, and these are ways that I can kind of validate their experiences. And, um, and I know that, you know, it can be as parents, we're kind of quick to redirect or to distract from those emotional experiences, but it really is important sometimes to um, be able to label their feelings because that helps them to be able to regulate their bodies um, and to be able to calm themselves down uh, when we're not available in the future, when they're at school and, and at places without us. Um, and with teenagers, you know, it can be um, really important to just ask open-ended questions. Um, so maybe it's during car rides, you know, that's a great place to be able to talk to them when you don't have to look each other in the eye and mm -hmm. it's a little less awkward. Uh, maybe you're on a walk together or at the mall um, and just kind of ask those open-ended questions like, how was your day, you know? And um, don't need to ask a lot of specific questions because sometimes that can make them feel a little bit more targeted in mm -hmm. some areas. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think just opening those doors that like, you know, these are things that we just talk about in our family and, and it's okay to, to make mistakes and we can talk through things. Um, it's also really important for parents to model, mm -hmm. you know, that big feelings are a part of life and that we can kind of lean into it and walk through this together. Um, and that again, can start really early on with kids. So, you know, maybe a, a toddler is having a meltdown and you're trying to help them through it. And maybe you're kind of overwhelmed in that process. Um, at times it is necessary for us to say, you know, mommy's feeling really mad right now. I need to go take a break and call my body down. I'll be back in just a minute. And that's okay to model that for our kids that, you know, we're not always feeling great either. And this is what I do when I feel this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great suggestions. And I'm, I'm really happy that you talked about that because I think a lot of, there's a lot of misconception about mental health and we think, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, I don't have to worry about this until they're a teenager, an adult, but really getting the, setting the stage early on for having those conversations about mental health and emotion regulation and things like that will really set the stage for healthy de development later on. So it's never, I guess I kind of feel like it's never too early to start these things and you can do them more subtly, like you said, like modeling or um, just having uh, conversation or validation of feelings. So I think those are really good um, tricks of the trade, so to speak, that parents can start off doing at, at a very young age. Absolutely. And like you said, setting the stage that, you know, this is a safe place for us to talk about anything um, is really important to do early on because kids aren't going to come to us with those tough conversations if they can't come to us with just the mundane things, you know? Right. And so I think we just need to open those doors for conversation and teach them that we're always going to respond in a supportive way. Um, so that they can come to us for the hard stuff later on. Um, and I think another strategy that some families will use is, you know, if you eat family dinners together, you can do highs and lows of your day. So what was the high and the best thing that happened in your day? 
And then also being able to talk about what was the low, right? Like knowing we can celebrate these things together, but we also know that life isn't perfect and there are hard things that happen throughout the day. So what was your low of the day? And just kind of normalizing that, you know, there are ups and downs in our days and in our lives. And, and this is a, a safe place where you can talk about that and be supported. Definitely. So you talked about, you know, mentioning the, the lows of your day and also like the toddler breakdowns that happened in the grocery store when you're checking out or something like that. Those are um, probably pretty typical examples of things that all parents have experienced. So how, but how would you know or how would a parent know if their child's problems are serious? So going beyond the temper tantrum um, over a candy bar or a, a typical low in the day of just, you know, having a bad moment, how would you, how would a parent know if their child's problems are serious? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, I think it's really important to first of all, know our kids, right? And, and know what their typical functioning looks like so that we can be aware of when that functioning might be changing. Um, and even in, you know, elementary school kids, you know, we can see, um, you know, depression, anxiety, um, and even younger than that. So I think being able to notice, like, is this something that's interfering with their functioning? Like, is the anxiety so crippling that they um, that we're, we're four months into school now and they're still having a breakdown mm -hmm. on the way every day. Um, you know, things that, that interrupt their, their daily functioning um, or if you're seeing any kind of regression. So um, maybe your child was fully potty trained and then um, they kind of regress and maybe they're having accidents again um, or, you know, changes in their vegetative symptoms, which are like sleep and, um, you know, their, their hygiene and stuff like that, their appetite, um, energy levels, uh, anything that just seems different than whatever your child's typical functioning is, um, can kind of be a red flag that maybe you want to come in and just have an assessment done and, and see if they would benefit from any kind of services or interventions. Yeah, I, I really like that. The, the idea of just knowing your child and knowing what's typical um, you can never underestimate that, right? I mean, are they normally like sleeping all day or are they normally not eating or, you know, like what, what are those signs that may indicate that something more problematic is, is happening in their lives? Yeah. Great, very simple piece of advice. And I think if, I, th I think that will make a world of difference. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, it's reading between the lines of what they're saying, um, maybe especially with older kids, you know, or a lot of kids might not know how to express what's going on with them. Um, and so, you know, if they are struggling, you know, with um, social situations, for example, um, being able to kind of hear what they're saying and not trying to fix it in the moment, but just being able to kind of reflect back their experience and that this sounds really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and we can always kind of throw in like, hey, are you feeling this way a lot of the time? Do you think it would help to talk to somebody about it? Mm -hmm. And if they say no, then, you know, that's okay. And you can go from there. But um, I think it's always okay to kind of be offering some of those things as well, because they might not be directly asking for it. Right. It's a good, good recommendation. So kind of moving, switching gears just a little bit from talking about what parents can do and how parents can recognize problems. Um, what are, 
you know, as a, as a therapist, what are some of your favorite coping strategies that you might recommend for kids to use in the moment as they're dealing with negative thoughts or, um, you know, kind of mental health issues? What are some coping strategies that you would suggest to kids? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is so hard because in the moment we're kind of, you know, trying to get our kids to do these strategies to help them calm down. Um, but that's really hard to do when they're very dysregulated and escalated in that moment. Um, so the beauty of coping skills really happens um, in the in-between time when they are calm, because if they can't learn these skills and practice these skills when their body is calm enough, they're not going to be able to use them in the moment when they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I might assign like some belly breathing or some progressive muscle relaxation. And I can certainly explain these things a little bit too, but if I assign a coping skill, I'm always going to have the child with the parents help in many cases, um, practice it maybe at bedtime, right before they go to bed and just kind of make it part of their routine, um, so that their brain can access it in the moment when they Mm -hmm. are having that meltdown and they're kind of in that fight, flight, or freeze response Mm -hmm. in their brain. Um, so that they can kind of access that because otherwise they're not going to be able to. Um, so I think some of my, some of my go-tos, um, for kids, you know, and it all kind of depends on the age, um, for the little ones, I like to use blowing out candles. So, um, that can kind of help them learn how to breathe. Um, you can hold up some fingers in front of them, um, and tell them to blow out the candles on your fingers. And then, you know, they blow and then you put a finger down with each one with each one that they blow out. And that's kind of fun for them to be able to do. Um, you can teach belly breathing at a really young age. Um, there are a lot of YouTube videos, um, that help with belly breathing. Um, and they're pretty simple to find. There's a really good Sesame street song about it. Um, on YouTube, but uh, you can have a child lie down and put a little stuffed animal on their belly and then have them give that stuffed animal a ride and and Mm -hmm. practice breathing through their belly and getting those breaths. Um, Another one that kids really like is, um, it's called the noodle, but I have them (laughs) practice that they're kind of like a stiff noodle. Um, And so they stiffen up their whole body and tighten all their muscles as if they're a stiff noodle. And then we pretend there's a pot of boiling water that they jump into. And then the noodle relaxes and their whole body can relax their muscles. Um, so some of them really like that one. Um, and then as they get older, you know, a lot of teenagers will identify with apps such as Headspace or mm-hmm. um, different things that can give them some skills to calm down. But I think the, the magic really happens when they're not distressed, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know it's hard to regulate my emotions like in the moment. So like having those tendencies kind of built up where it's almost becomes like instinctual, you know, uh, makes a lot of sense. So it's impossible to teach someone something in the heat of the moment, but to get those that skill set so it becomes more natural for them. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, I don't think it's something that we tend to think about very much because you're just like in the moment, you're like, we need to fix this now, but you need to practice in order to have that skill. Like you don't just go run, you know, for example, the bio girls 5k, you don't just go run it cold Turkey, you know, you have to practice it. So it's the same thing with um, coping and regulating your emotions. You have to practice the skills in order to be able to successfully complete, you know, whatever X, Y, Z 
absolutely you have to train for it ahead of time and right <laughs> you know like you said if you think about if if we're distressed and if um somebody is telling us like just take some deep breaths you know that's <laughs> it generally doesn't work for us in the moment because we're too upset so right. being able to kind of have that baseline that okay I know what it feels like in my body to feel calm and here's what I have to do to get back to that place um can be really helpful for all of us kids and adults for sure for sure. So Christina, I know that um, you're a big fan of self-compassion and the importance of it for everyone. So I was wondering if you could just, you know, for a minute, just talk about the importance of self-compassion and mental health. Yeah. Um, I am a big fan of, um, Kristen Neff is the researcher's name um, who has done a lot of research on self-compassion um, that I found really helpful in my practice as a therapist, um, because I think it makes so much sense. And the concept is that, you know, we spend a lot of effort and a lot of time trying to increase kids' self-esteem and people's self-esteem. Um, but the problem that we're finding with it is that self-esteem also requires us to kind of um, compete with others or, you know, be the best at something. And we kind of draw a lot of our self-esteem from um, our productivity or from things that we've accomplished. And, um, and that sometimes isn't the most effective way to feel good about ourselves. And so what they found um, in more recent years is that self-compassion is a really effective way um, to feel good about ourselves. And so we're kind of in a roundabout way helping to increase that self-esteem, but in a more realistic and helpful way. Um, and so self-compassion just kind of involves being your own best friend, honestly. I mean, in those moments where we're needing, you know, if you're a child, you need your parents maybe, or if you're an adult, maybe you need a good friend or a partner to say to you, you know, it's okay, I'm here for you, I'm going to help you through this, you know, I've been there too, and this is hard. Um, the, the beauty of that is that we can do that for ourselves, because not that we don't need other people, we certainly do, but there are instances in our lives where we don't always have access to other people to support us when we need it in the moment. And even as parents, you know, being able to just kind of take a second and, you know, put your hand on your heart and say, you know, this, this feels really hard right now. And I'm going to have some compassion for myself and know that I'm doing the best I can right now. Um, and that can really help us to kind of reset, to be able to also have that compassion for our kids. Mm -hmm. Um, because if we don't have that ourselves, we can't really give it away. Yeah. I think, um, going along with what you were saying before, I think this takes a lot of practice too. So it's not just something that we can expect ourselves to be good at. I mean, it's hard to be compassionate towards yourself. And in some cases, I think it's easier to be compassionate towards other people. So we need to extend that to ourselves and really, really practice, practice what you just said. And in order to, I don't know, be more com compassionate to ourselves and others. Yeah, yeah. And if we think about it, our culture and our society historically has not always been supportive of that. True, true. Right. And so um, being compassionate toward ourselves might have been seen as weak, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes still is. Um, but I think we're starting to kind of turn this corner of knowing it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to be compassionate toward ourselves because we're finding from the research that these, these concepts are actually helpful and people are more successful with them. And so we need to be teaching people these strategies that, that can be really beneficial. For sure. Um, so 
Christina, do you, you mentioned Kristen Neff, the book by Kristen Neff. Do you have any other book recommendations that our listeners might um, enjoy reading? Yeah, um, I think I would start with just what you said about Kristen Neff. She's the mm -hmm. author. She has a few different books. Um, one of them is just titled Self-Compassion. Um, she has the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, and that has some exercises throughout. Um, and she also has a, a new book out that's called Fierce Self-Compassion. Um, and this one is about um, how women can harness kindness to speak up and claim their power and thrive. So that one is kind of more geared toward women. Um, she also has a website, um, I believe it's called selfcompassion.org, and that has a lot of free exercises on it as well um, that people can use. Um, another parenting book that I like to recommend is um, The Nurtured Heart Approach, which um, many of us are familiar with in the Fargo area. Um, but I'd say the one that I would recommend from that is called Transforming the Difficult Child, The Nurtured Heart Approach. Um, and it's by Howard Glazer and Jennifer Easley. Um, and so that one can be a really good parenting approach that um, really builds character in kids as well. So a lot of parents can really identify with that one as well. Thank you. I, I think we have a, a lot to chew on here. We have a lot of really like practical um, advice and also some, some books to read here. So um, I think really just knowing that it, these things are we have to train ourselves, right? We have to train ourselves to be more self-compassionate. We have to train our, our children to learn coping strategies. So really like being kind to ourselves and um, you know, knowing that it's not gonna be um, an easy process to learn, I think is, is a good, a good message that we could all benefit from. I know like in our culture, like we want quick results, right? And we wanna learn something quickly so we're able to do it. But I think just knowing that it is it is hard and it is something that we have to learn and we have to spend the time learning it, I think is, is an important message that we could all benefit from. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's right in line with what we've been talking about with self-compassion, right? That we're not going to be good at these things overnight. And that's okay. It's a learning process and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to stumble along the way. And especially as parents, we make mistakes all the time. And so being able to have compassion for ourselves and model that and apologize to our kids when we do lose it is okay. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those things are really important um, to remember that, you know, this is a learning experience and we're not expected to be perfect at it. Yeah. Thank you, Christina. I think that was a good closing sentiment there. So I just like to thank you so much for our great conversation and tips that you've provided us with Christina. It's very valuable and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Happy to have you. Thank you.